Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 20. And this evening we're again speaking of a very important topic that's found in the fourth uh, through the sixth verses in the 20th chapter. I know by now it seems to you that we're never going to get through with three, three verses, but I promise you we're going to finish these tonight. And, and we've stayed right here in these verses for quite some time because although this passage is short, just these three verses, it's really power-packed with meaning. The problem is you can't find all the meaning just by these three verses. Instead, you have to go to other parts of the Bible and you have to do some digging and some searching in order to find the explanation for this. And we found that to be true as we've talked about the millennium over the past several weeks. Uh, This is the only place in Scripture where it gives us the length of the millennium. Well, that's a thousand years, of course. The length of the coming kingdom of Christ. Uh, That is this part of it. And this part of it is relative to the amount of time that Satan is removed from this world so that Christ establish his ruling authority upon the earth uh, in that future kingdom. But the scripture here says nothing at all about the characteristics of the kingdom. To find that information, we have to go to other places of scripture, and there is abundant information about the coming kingdom in, uh, in the Old Testament and other parts of the New Testament as well. Now, we do have some things mentioned here. And one of the things it tells us about in this particular section is that there will be ruling members with Christ in that kingdom. And we find some of them listed here. And then we go again to other parts of Scripture to find out the rest of that information. So gathering all of that up has taken us quite a bit of time because we just can't find everything in the three verses that we need to know here. And then there are other subjects that are spoken of as well. Uh, There's the mention of the first resurrection and the second death. And so we paused once again here. What does the Bible mean by the first resurrection and the second death? Now, if there is a first resurrection, then that implies that there must be a second. So there must be a difference between them. There is a second death, and we need to know what that's all about too. Now, that's where we are right now. Uh, the, the explanation of the resurrection, these two resurrections, has profound implications for our understanding of this text and especially our understanding of the millennium. Now, if you look in uh, the 20th chapter, verse number 4, uh, you should be familiar with these three verses. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now the first part of this message from last week was quite involved as we talked about the different disagreements on the type of resurrection that's mentioned in these verses. Now throughout the study of these opening verses, we keep bumping up these different views of the millennium. And the same is true with what we believe about the first resurrection. That's an indicator about whether you believe that the kingdom coming, the coming kingdom of Christ is actually a spiritual kingdom or is it a literal kingdom. Now, if the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, it means that we must be living in it right now. If it's literal, 
then it has to be somewhere in the future because we see no indication of the, in the past or the present of any of the fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies. Uh, God's people don't rule the earth. The Bible says that we will in the millennium. There is no peace on the earth right now. That doesn't come into the millennium. There still are wild animals. Lions do not eat straw like oxen. Children don't play with poisonous snakes. Those are all parts of the literal aspect of the kingdom. But we don't have any of that. So if there is no literal kingdom, then the resurrection that's spoken of in verses 5 and 6 must be a spiritual resurrection. And if it's a physical resurrection, then you end up with two resurrections separated by a 1,000-year empty space. Now, we do believe that there are two physical resurrections, and the 1,000-year empty space is not empty at all. But that 1,000 years is filled up with the glorious uh, global kingdom, spectacular kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's what the text indicates, so that's what we believe. The first resurrection is a literal resurrection. And that agrees with multitudes of Scripture that use the term resurrection. And in those cases, more than 40 that we find in the Bible, in the New Testament, that the resurrection spoken of is always a literal resurrection. In other words, we're talking about dead bodies being raised. And this is just one of the many problems that you run into if you try to expunge the literal kingdom from the Scriptures. You'll come to Revelation chapter 20, and your misinterpretations of other passages will lead you to, a, uh, to interpret this passage in a very unusual manner. And so you'll be looking for spiritual resurrections rather than the clearly indicated resurrection of the body that the Bible teaches. So our view of this comes from a literal interpretation of the text. The first resurrection is a real resurrection of dead bodies. It's not speaking of regeneration, not when you get saved, when you're born again, you're raised from spiritual death into spiritual life. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the physical body. When the body is raised and when it's glorified and then when it goes to be uh, with, with Christ in heaven and to rule also in the millennial kingdom. So there are two physical resurrections that are separated by a period of 1,000 years. Those two resurrections are different in character, and they involve two different classes of people. Now, it's interesting that the Bible always makes a distinction between two types of people. And there are only two types of people. Now, we've noted that in our study of the Sermon on the Mount some time ago, that there are two classifications of people. And in Matthew chapter 7, it told us there that there are those that are on the narrow way and those that are on the broad way. It said there are, there are good trees and there are corrupt trees. There's good fruit and there's bad fruit. There's true professors and false professors. There are those that have built their lives on a good foundation, those that have built their lives on a shaky foundation, those that are built on the rock, and those that are built on the sand. It's always that, one or the other. You don't have any other classifications. So all of those are metaphors for those two classes of people, the redeemed that are on their way to heaven or the reprobate that are on their way to hell. And what we have in this passage is just another way of stating that difference. Those that are in the first resurrection are those that are going to heaven and those that are in the second resurrection are those that are going to hell. And so there is a vital distinction between those two. The first are blessed and the second are damned. Now let me back up for a moment to the first message, and let me just give you a brief synopsis of that first point, which was the sequence of the first resurrection. 
We learned that the first resurrection is not a singular event. Now, it does include all of the redeemed of God, but not all of them are raised at the same time. And that's very clear uh, by several scriptures, especially by the premier place in scripture that we go to to learn about the resurrection, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, concerning this particular aspect of the resurrection, Paul explains this to us. He says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So he says all that are in Christ will be made alive, but he says every man in his own order. And so that tells us that there is a sequence in the first resurrection. I don't have time to go back into all of that and explain it again, but we learned that Christ is first, was the first to arise from the dead under his own power, so he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And his resurrection guarantees that others will follow, that there will be following fruits. So when Christ comes in the rapture, all the dead in Christ at that time will be raised, All the living will be transformed into their glorified bodies, and all of those people are in the first resurrection. But it includes another phase as well. Our text here shows us that at the end of the tribulation and before the millennium begins, all the believers that believe during that time will be raised to rule with Christ. So they're all considered in the first resurrection. And so the point of this passage is to show us that all of these different people will reign in the glorious future kingdom of Christ. So that's the sequence of the first resurrection. Now this evening we're going to go a little bit further, and I want to talk to you about the superiority of the first resurrection. There is another resurrection. Uh, The second resurrection is those who have died in unbelief. All of the dead bodies of all unbelievers will be raised from their grave. All the ones that were before Christ, all the ones in the New Testament era, era, all of those in the tribulation, all of those that died during the millennium, they'll be raised all at one time. And that's at the end of the millennium, and they're brought before the judgment of God at the great white throne. Now, that first resurrection is vastly superior, and that's already evident by the things that we've discussed. The first resurrection is to the bliss of heaven, while the second is to the fiery blast of hell. Now, let's take a closer look at this. I'm going to show you this evening three reasons why that the first resurrection is superior. Hebrews says, we have obtained a better resurrection. So why is it better? Well, first of all, it's superior because it promotes the saved to honor. Now, most Christians really have no idea what eternal life is going to be like. J.A. Seitz uh, writes about this in a long passage, and I'm going to read this to you because I just don't have a better way of saying it than he did. But listen very carefully to what he says. He says, People spiritualize and explain away the great things of God's revelation until the whole matter evaporates in their hands and the true Christian hope vanishes into insipidity and nothingness. They make ado about getting to heaven, but have lost all understanding of what it means. 
All the singing and longing and fond anticipation on the subject really amounts to very little more than going to see Jesus, to meet some departed friends, to make the acquaintance of some distinguished people that once lived. They talk of rest, but rest is not heaven any more than sleep is life. And the impossibility of finding realities with which to fill up the scriptural images and descriptions of the final portion of the redeemed on the part of those who spiritualize the first resurrection is ample evidence of their tremendous mistake. They, in effect, abolish everything that makes heaven heaven. And all their pictures of futurity are simply the taking of God's ransomed kings into a world of shadows to find eternal bliss and ever-growing greatness in the languor of songs or the dreamy joys of an endless spiritual intoxication, all as impossible as it is uninviting to rational natures or to beings invested with immortal powers. No, the joys and honors of the children of the resurrection are that they are made kings and priests unto God and Christ, installed and endowed as immortal benefactors of the nations upon the earth, the unerring lords, rulers, and invincible shepherds of a renewed world, the everlasting guides, judges, and potentates of a redeemed race. Now, that's really a tremendous quote. Seiss believed that spiritualizing this particular text is really a travesty of biblical interpretation. And he says, God's not trying to fill up our minds with metaphors and ghostly images. And he says, the thrones here are real thrones. Real people are sitting on them. God's people have real titles and they have real authority in his kingdom. Seiss says in another place, they're not mere names and empty titles. The saints know no sinecures. Now, sinecure is an office with no spiritual duties. It means a figurehead. Now, that's a good word for your vocabulary. You'll learn a new word tonight, maybe some of you. you. What is a sinecure? It's a figurehead, an office that has no spiritual duties. Now, I butted heads with people on these issues uh, about the future kingdom and also concerning the church in the present time. Because there are some pastors that want to make the office of the deacon a sinecure. That's give it no spiritual responsibilities. But the church has these offices of pastor and deacon for a reason. And they have spiritual qualifications that have to be met. And so there are real duties that are assigned to the office of the deacon. It has spiritual qualifications. But that's not my subject tonight. That's for another time. I just thought I'd throw that in. The kingdom is a time for God's people to be promoted to places of honor. Now, while I'm going a little bit off, off topic, I might as well uh, add this as well. Not, now is not the time for Christians to seek honor. Now, let me read a, a scripture to you from Ephesians chapter 2. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So the scripture says our blessings are in heavenly places. Our honor is in heavenly places and not on the earth. And so we're not to seek honor now. That's one of the tenets of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is they're always seeking their honor now. But God intends, or I should say doesn't intend, for Christians to have it all now. Now what these people do is they ignore the scriptures that talk about suffering and how that suffering is the design for Christians in this life. See, the gospel never makes a promise of physical health. It never says that you're going to have financial gain when you become a Christian. 
Uh, Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now there are two important points that are made in that passage. We are appointed to believe. That's the sovereignty of God in salvation. And my apologies to anybody who doesn't believe in sovereign election, but that's what this scripture is about. And then the second is the appointment to suffering. And that's an oft-repeated theme as you go through Scripture. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples. He said, you are going to be persecuted for your faith. We'll get to that a little bit later in Matthew chapter 10. This is expected for believers. So there is no promise in the Christian life that we're able to live this life with fantastic riches and have no hardships. And then the Bible further teaches that we ought not to be disappointed because we can't. God gives us the grace to live within his purpose right now. And Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. But health, wealth, and prosperity preachers are not the only ones that have this wrong. I mean, there are other ministries that have it wrong as well. Uh, They want to exalt preachers. They want to build ministries out of personalities. They like to be applauded. They love to have their standing ovations when they enter the room. But Paul addresses that as well. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God giveth the increase." Now, basically, what Paul is telling us there is the preacher is nothing. The preacher is a vessel that's used by God. In another place, Paul said that we have God's glory in earthen vessels. And you might not like the explanation of that scripture, but what he means is that we are clay pots that are used to take out human waste. That's what he means when he says we have this glory in earthen vessels. And it's simply this, preachers are not to seek glory. But there are many who say, well, here's what we did. Here's who we are. Here's the record of our accomplishments. Let me give you the book that has my picture on every page. Here's the personal URL for my website. And you think, who gave the increase? It's God who gives the increase. It's not up to us. Now, folks, you can tell that's a pet peeve with me. And and I'll just go on to say now that the time for exaltation is in Christ's kingdom. That's when it comes. And we're not to be looking for all of this now. He promises that we're going to sit with him in heavenly places. He says we will have real thrones. And when we have those, we won't be prideful. But we'll occupy those thrones pointing all of the time to Jesus Christ as the supreme ruler. We have the mind of Christ. And so we'll always look to him as the one who who is the Lamb of God who took away the vileness of our sin. So promotion is a future reality, and we don't want to get the cart before the horse. Our day will come, and for now we endure because that hope is coming. The Bible says that it is. Now, the epistle of Titus, Paul wrote, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the blessed hope is the appearance of Christ and all the good things that come with it for believers. But for now... God says, be content with such things as ye have. So the saints know no sinecures. And then I might add, concerning uh, promotion, 
that we are promoted to holiness. Now, we're familiar with a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah saw a vision of God's throne, and there he saw angels that were around the throne and continually they were crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And we just sang about that just a moment ago. Good choice. I think it was uh, Tate who asked us to sing, Holy, holy, holy. Well, Isaiah said this, Then said I, I mean, Isaiah saw this, saw this, he was in the presence of God, and he saw these, these angels, and he was overwhelmed. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was one of God's greatest prophets. And he said, woe is me. Shame on me. He says, I'm undone. I'm wasted. I don't deserve to look upon the glory of God. Now that's quite different from the rhinestone glittery preachers who like their standing ovations when they enter the room. But that's what Isaiah thought about himself when he was in the body. But there's a difference in the resurrected body because then we will be holy. And here's what John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Then we'll be able to come into the presence of God and not feel any shame at all. And so the first resurrection is superior because that's the time for saints to be promoted to honor. Well, next, the first resurrection is superior because it prevents the second death. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. What is the second death? Well, the simple answer to that is that the second death comes from having only one birth. Every person in the world has had one birth. And the only people in the world that weren't born were Adam and Eve, so that means they didn't have belly buttons. Now, everybody else, because you were born, you you have that. But I don't think we really have to labor too hard on this to convince everybody that we were born. Uh, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, there are some people who interpret his conversation with Nicodemus that he had to state the obvious, to tell Nicodemus, well, first of all, you have to be born. Well, he already knew that. Let, let's turn to John chapter 3 for just a minute. And uh, this is one of those what I call a utilitarian passage because it fits so well in many different uh, settings. But John 3 is a great chapter on the problem of being born only once. So all of those that have belly buttons, whether they're inner, innies or outies, you need to know John chapter 3 very well. Now, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, who was a very religious man. He was quite familiar with Scripture. So we pick up the story here in verse number 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at the end of the fifth verse, Jesus is not stating the obvious here. Except a man be born of water does not mean natural birth. He's not speaking of the amniotic fluid. And neither is he here speaking about baptism. Water has one of two meanings in this scripture, and, and either one of these is acceptable. Either it means that a person has to be born by the word of God, 
because the word is often referred to as, as water in the scriptures. That would be Arthur Pink's position. Or he's speaking of the spirit where water and spirit would be in opposition to one another. And that would be the viewpoint of John Gill and John Calvin. Now, the most important part of this is that a person with a belly button needs more than a natural birth. He needs a spiritual birth. Or he can't see the kingdom of God. Now, he needs that because all people with belly buttons are born physically dead, or physically alive, but spiritually dead. Now, this is what, as you know, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says we're dead in trespasses and sin. And so when we are regenerated, same term that John uses in in John chapter 3 is born again, that's when we're made spiritually alive. So we have two births. And the second birth is the one that qualifies us for the first resurrection. We die once, but then we're raised to be kings and priests of God. But on the other hand, all of those who have only one birth, the natural birth, die physically, and then they are raised for the second death, And the second death is to be forever separated from God. The second death is not to sit on thrones. The second death is to burn in the fires of hell. And that has been reduced, all of what I've just said has been reduced to a popular statement, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. So all of those that are born again are in the first resurrection and they're prevented from the second death. Scripture says here the second death has no power over them. That means it has no authority over them. So you see how far superior the first resurrection is the second, and you have to, uh, to the second. And you have to be in the first or you will be in the second. And that spiritual dichotomy is the only one that exists. You are either in the first or the second resurrection. Now thirdly, the, the first resurrection is superior because it protects the saints for eternity. Now, it's very important for us to understand, again, that the 1,000 years is not the extent of the kingdom. The millennium is only relative to the binding of Satan, not to the entire time of the kingdom. Isaiah 9, verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Luke chapter 1, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And so every passage that you read concerning this particular aspect of God's kingdom is a promise that it is everlasting. Now verse number uh, 7 in Revelation chapter 20 talks about the end of that part of the kingdom. But this particular part, he says, when the thousand years are finished or when they're expired. So when this portion expires, Satan is loosed out of the bottomless pit and then the kingdom doesn't end. It just changes forms. And we, trans- we transition into chapter 21 where we have a view of new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, in between chapters 20 and 21 is information that has to be sought elsewhere. And we'll talk about that when we get to that. But, but just a preview of it, Peter has the information for us. In Second Peter 3, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, 
in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, Peter goes on to say that God's people will survive that conflagration. In 2 Peter 3, 11 and 13, it says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness." And so we go from chapter 20 and the end of that first thousand years of the kingdom right into part number two of the kingdom in chapter 21. Now if you'll turn there to chapter 21 for just a minute and verse number 27, this is speaking of the new Jerusalem after everything is burned up. Verse 27 says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that is a great reference. For, uh, for a couple of weeks, I used this scripture in Acts, Acts fifteen eighteen. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now there in, in chapter 21, verse 27, it says the ones who enter in are those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life is a prehistory book. God wrote it before he ever created anything. And the names that appear in that book are the same people that enter into the New Jerusalem. Now, over and over again, the Scripture refers to them as God's elect. And they are the ones in the first resurrection. These are the ones that sit on thrones in the millennial kingdom. They are the ones that transition into the New Jerusalem. So now we want to return to that uh, great definitive chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. If you'll turn back there for just a moment, we'll tie all of this together again with the first resurrection. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 23, where Paul begins to explain about the uh, resurrection in, in this particular part of it. He says, in, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now that's what the first resurrection guarantees. It guarantees that death is, is, is destroyed. So those that are raised to be in that first resurrection never die again. Now, following that, we go to the 51st verse in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality... Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And so those that are in the first resurrection become immortal. Now some of you on Facebook got that wrong. You thought, you read it wrong, and you said, And this mortal must put on immorality. But it doesn't say immorality, it says immortality. And that means not subject to death. So the first resurrection protects the saints 
in eternity. They are not subject to death. Now, you see why Hebrews calls that a better resurrection? You understand why John says, Blessed and holy are those that are in the first resurrection. Let me give you one more scripture, and this is one that I often read at funeral services of Christians. Revelation fourteen thirteen. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they rest from their labors, and their works do follow him them. Now, we are blessed to die with faith in Christ. We have part of the first resurrection. And it says there that we rest from our labors. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we rest from the toil of physical life, this laborious travail of suffering that we have under the curse of sin. It means that we rest from heartaches, from temptations, and we rest even from death. We're released from all of that. We rest from it. But we don't rest from all of our duties. The saints know no sinecures. And so we're busy as kings and priests of God. As Sice says, we are endowed as immortal benefactors of the nations upon the earth, the unerring lords, rulers, and invincible shepherds of a renewed world, the everlasting guides, judges, and potentates of redeemed race. And this is why John says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's a better resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at your word tonight and we think how blessed we are to know you as Savior. The great promises that we have in your word, Lord, for those who, who trust you. And we're looking forward to this time when we lay aside this, this uh, flesh that we live in, all the difficulties that we have in this life, all the, uh, the heartaches, all the troubles. And you promise us that one of these days we are going to be able to lay that aside and then we move into your, to your glorious kingdom and life for you forever, with you forever. We thank you for that, Lord, and we just pray that you'd help us to look forward to that every single day of our lives. Pray, Lord, you bless your people and strengthen us in your word. Uh, help us, Lord, this week to, to be in your word, to think about even things that we've talked about tonight. What a great blessing that will be. And we give you the praise for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.